your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 13, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, so we have a little better sense of the context. As we look at uh, this wonderful definition of saving faith, this is a, this is one of the last times in the book of Romans that we'll have a, this clear, concise definition of the gospel. And so I'm, I'm a little grieved this morning that we're going to be moving on, but let's just really take advantage this morning of, of the truth that God has for us here. Paul is, as you know, in Romans 9 and 10, he's talking about the situation, of the, the heartbreaking situation where uh, the, so many Jews, the, the majority of the Jews, are rejecting the gospel. And... Um, and so he begins in chapter 1, in, in verse 1 of chapter 10, to explain his grief in that and then help us unpack why, why is that happening. And let's give our attention to God's word. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses, writing about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would teach us, open our hearts again today to receive this truth and work its power in our lives, whether we uh, have been Christians for a long, long time or whether today we are still outside of Christ. Jesus, uh, save us by your word, your truth, your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to some of the most precious words in the Bible, uh, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, uh, you will be saved. Uh, maybe you notice as we're reading through this text how often Paul uses that word saved. His heart's desire for the Jews is that they would be saved. Uh, it struck me as I was studying this that, uh, that uh, there is a tendency in Dutch Reformed circles at least not to talk a lot about being saved. Uh, being saved is language maybe that we associate more with Baptists or uh, Mel Trotter, you know, the, the missions downtown where they sing the old gospel hymns and, and still preach the old uh, gospel, uh, and preach for gospel, old gospel conversions. But, um, but it's not a word that's popular, certainly not in our culture, right? Uh, upper or middle 
upper class Americans, we, we don't get saved. We get therapy or, or coaching and life skills. Um, and, and even in, in reformed circles, uh, getting saved, it, it's, just, it's just language we don't use that often. Uh, it's not something maybe you talk about in polite conversation. Uh, when's the last time anyone asked you, how are you saved? It's, it's not a conversation that we have that often. But uh, it's something that Paul talks about with abandon. Paul loves the concept of being saved, getting saved. And uh, he starts this gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And his heart's desire was that the Jews might be saved. Uh, Paul is preaching a gospel of of salvation for sinners by the blood of Jesus Christ and through faith in him. And, and this is the amazing good news of the gospel. Uh, Jesus Christ came to save people from their sin. People can be saved, right, immediately. They can be con- converted on the spot. It can happen today. Uh, God's saving grace is near at hand. And that's the point that Paul wants to press home this morning in our text. As we noted, Paul has been dealing with this issue of Jews not coming to faith, because not, uh, not being saved, because they were um, trying to uh, gain salvation and gain righteousness through the law, through human effort, and, and were failing to attain it. But the, the Gentiles were, were being saved, coming to faith, uh, because they were following the, the way of salvation as God laid it out. They were trusting that God was willing to g- freely give righteousness to those who simply confess their sin and call on Jesus' name. And now here in, in verses 5 and following, Paul is going to show, in, in a sense, how easy it is to be saved. That the word is very near. The promise is very strong. There's no need for anyone within the sound of the gospel to be lost. And so we'll look at this morning at saving faith. First, it's proximity, then it's profession, and thirdly, it's promise. Uh, Paul begins in verse 5 with the word for, which just tells us that he's continuing a line of thought. He's been contrasting, as I said, these two ways of righteousness. Righteousness by human effort and the commands of the law, and righteousness through human... um, abdication of effort and just casting yourself on Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, And Paul wants us just to to note again in verse 5 that the problem with the law is that it it promises righteousness to those who do it. Verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. And just notice that word does, that the law promises righteousness and eternal life by means of doing. All you need to do is obey the commands of God. Maybe you remember the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler who came and says, teacher, what's the way to eternal life? How can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he says, yeah, but I've done all that, right? Um, I've got that taken care of. And, and Jesus says, excellent, just one thing that you still lack, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the man goes away sorrowful, sad, because he had great wealth. And Jesus, 
just stuck his finger on this man's sin issue. He didn't love God above all, as the first commandment says. Uh, he loved his money. He loved his possessions. He loved the comfort and the, uh, and, the, and the prestige and power that they afforded. He loved his money. He coveted the things that money could give. And so he failed completely at the law and went away sad. And Jesus grieved and said how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. You see, the problem with the law is that it sets a standard that we cannot reach. We can't jump that high. So salvation by law-keeping is unattainable. The promise is true. If you, if you keep the law, you will live. But the condition is not possible. Boys and girls, uh, what about if I made a deal with you this morning and I, and I promised you that I would give you a million dollars, and I could maybe pull out a wad of cash and wave it right in front of you. A million dollars, I promise, I will give it to you. All you have to do is jump over this building in a single leap. No help. You just got to run as hard as you can and then jump and clear the entire building, and I will give you a million dollars. Who would like to try? Anybody? No hands? Somebody's got a hand up. <laughs> Good luck with that. We'll catch you right after the service. <clears throat> the promise is true. The condition is impossible. And so the reward is unattainable. And that's exactly the way it is with the law. The, um, the condition is just not something that fallen sinners can achieve. And so the reward is completely unattainable. But praise God, he's made a new way, a different way for sinners to be saved. God has made a way where sinners can attain righteousness, not by effort, not by the law, but they can attain righteousness as a free gift received by faith. And here in verses 6 through 8, Paul wants us to see that that way, that righteousness, the righteousness that is by faith, is not unattainable. It's the exact opposite. It's very near. It's very accessible. The righteousness based on faith, verse 6, says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven in order to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? What does the Bible say? It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith we proclaim. You see, the law says, jump over the building and you will be saved, which is a hopeless message. But the gospel says that you can be saved right here, right now, sitting in your seat. Because the word is near you. It has come near in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go climb a towering mountain or dig into the abyss in order to find salvation, to find righteousness. You don't have to go searching far and wide. Every time the gospel is proclaimed to you, it is as if Christ Jesus himself has come near you, has sat in the seat next to you, and offers you the free gift of his righteousness and the eternal salvation that it brings. John Stott says there's no need whatever for us to scale the heights or plumb the depths in search of Christ, for he has already come to us. 
and died and risen and so is accessible to us. It's accessible. All we need to do is receive it. We need to, re- to believe it, right? There, there are multitudes of professing believers who are trying and trying and trying to climb the mountain. Trying to be good enough to be saved, but, but they lack assurance because they look at their life and they realize that they're not good enough yet and they, and they haven't done enough yet. You read it in the testimonies this morning. That's the common, common plight of so many professing Christians. I think we've all struggled with this. I mean, have you ever just sat and seriously thought about the, the, the truth of your sin? And if, if I were to tell you that tomorrow you're going to die, that you're going to be in front of the judgment seat tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., wouldn't you stop to think about, am I ready for that? What about, what about the things that I've done? the most profoundly shameful things in my life. Am I, am I ready to stand before the judge who knows everything? And we Christians can tremble, can struggle. But see, this, this, this message that Paul is saying is, if, 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 if that's your struggle, well, there's great news for you. You see, We need to remember the essential, essential point of the gospel, which is that you don't get saved by trying. You get saved by receiving. Your life is a vastly greater mess than you could possibly imagine it to be. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come near and that his salvation is freely given to you as he robes you in his own righteousness. This is so accessible for us. He's right here. We just need to receive it. Just need to believe. Well, what do we need to believe? Secondly, the profession of saving faith. Paul says in verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice there are two aspects to saving faith. There's an outward confession with the mouth, and there's an inward conviction of the heart. Outward confession with the mouth, inward conviction of the heart. Let's just take them in order. The outward confession is simply, Jesus is Lord. Three words, two in the Greek. It may seem like a minimal confession. I mean, is that all we have to say? What about all the doctrines in the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession of Faith? What about basic Christian doctrine like the virgin birth or the miracles of Christ or the cross, substitutionary atonement? Don't you have to confess those things? Well, sure you do. Paul's not trying to be reductionistic, but what he's saying, what he's showing us is that all of those truths are captured in this one profound profession, Jesus is Lord. Let me explain that. On the one hand, that is a, it's an astounding confession concerning the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? It's a question that people have been asking ever since he was born. Who is Jesus, this man from Nazareth? 
And we are used to saying, well, Jesus is Lord. In Paul's day, <laughs> that was an astonishing, outrageous thing to say, particularly for, for Jews. You see, they know what Lord means. So uh, the, the, the Greek word, uh, kyrios, Lord, it's, it's the word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the word they used to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name that was so sacred and holy that Jews didn't speak it, the name for God. And in the Greek, they used Kyrios, Lord, to translate Yahweh. So when the Jews read from their Greek Bibles, right, like so the prophet Joel, whom Paul quotes here, Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of Kyrios, Lord, will be saved. Well, they know what that means. Everyone who calls on the name of God, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. That's not a controversial statement. That's standard Jewish doctrine, standard biblical doctrine. But when you add Jesus to the sentence, it becomes explosively provocative and controversial. Because what you're saying is that Jesus, the son of Mary, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is God, Yahweh. If you lived at that day, I mean, if I just you know, pointed out, you see that guy walking down the street there? His name is John, and uh, he's God, Yahweh. Now, if you had your senses about you'd probably slap me. That's exactly how it felt to the Jews, particularly when they saw Jesus go about his life. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that God eats with prostitutes and tax collectors. He communes with them. Yahweh does. It's to say that God was crucified, condemned as a worthless criminal. I mean, it's just outrageous stuff. You, know, you can't say, say stuff like this. It is, it is over-the-top blasphemy. Or it's unbelievably true, incredibly, astonishingly true, shockingly true. And this is what, you see, the Christians profess. We profess it's true. Jesus, the son of Mary, Jesus, the man from the little town of Nazareth who sat with prostitutes and sinners and was crucified to a cross, condemned, he is Lord. That's what we profess. It's true. And not only, you see, do we profess this concerning uh, his identity, but to say Jesus is Lord is to make a confession concerning what he accomplished. As Paul says in Philippians 2, right, Jesus became obedient even to death on the cross, wherefore the Father exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So to say Jesus is Lord is to say that Christ has accomplished the work of redemption. Christ has defeated the powers of sin and death and hell for those who belong to him. To say Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is right now reigning victoriously on the throne of heaven and sovereignly ordaining and ruling over all the affairs of men and all the events of history. He is Lord, not was Lord, or will be Lord. He is Lord today, reigns king. Now think about how precious that truth would be if you're the first century church and you're being persecuted by the kings and rulers of the earth. Every Caesar and part-time potentate called himself Lord, Kyrios. But the church knows that Jesus Christ alone is reigning on the throne of heaven. So for instance, in, in 156 AD, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was martyred for his faith. And those who recorded his death, his friends, wrote this. He, Polycarp, was arrested by Herod when Stadius Quadratus was governor, but our Lord Jesus Christ was reigning. Isn't that great? Quadratus, he was doing his little thing, but our Lord Jesus Christ was reigning. To him be the glory, honor, majesty, and eternal dominion from generation to generation. Amen. You see, it's no small thing to confess that Jesus is Lord. It's the most, it's the most eternally significant thing that can ever come out of your mouth. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is Lord. And to be a Christian means we say it. We confess it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, just as we saw these folks say it this morning. As you, when you confess it, right, at the, at the grocery store, when you confess it at work, when you confess it at, at, in your life at home, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's what Christians do. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. Do you want Jesus to confess you before his Father? Say, this one is mine. Well, Jesus calls us to confess him now, today, before the world. Because that's what Christians do. The, the, the people of God are confessing people. The church of Christ is a confessing community. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. God gives us the ability to say that. Saving faith is not a hidden faith, is it? It's not a hidden faith. It's a confessing faith. Jesus is Lord. But we not, don't just make the confession. There's an inward conviction. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And once again, that might seem reductionistic, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, encapsulates all that Christ accomplished. It's very fine proof of who he was and what he did. So we read that um, in the Gospel of John chapter 2, the, the Jews demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign do you do to prove your authority? I mean, who do you think you are? What, what sign will you give to prove your identity? And Jesus says, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they laugh, of course, took our fathers years and years and years, decades uh, to build this thing. And you're going you're gonna to build it in three days? And then John writes, but the temple he was talking about was his own body. 
And after he was raised from the dead, his, disi his disciples recalled what he had said. Then, then, remember Jesus said that? Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the verifying proof that the scriptures were true about everything they said about the Messiah and that Jesus was that Messiah. And it was proof that his, his work was sufficient and efficient, accomplished. The work of redemption that the Father had given him to do. That's what the resurrection says. R.A. Torrey, an old evangelist from 100 years ago or so, he, he says this, when Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. But when he arose, he arose as my representative, and I rose in him. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open sepulcher, and I know that the atonement has been accepted. Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. And that means that redemption has been accomplished. Our sins have been forgiven. This is the ground of our assurance. Yes, he was died. Yes, he died, and he was buried. But on the third day, he rose again, and he lives today. He reigns today. He's, he's coming again, this Jesus. And, and the beautiful promise of the gospel is this. If you believe that in your heart, if you're convinced that this Jesus was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father and for the justification of sinners, you shall be saved. And Paul expands that in verses 11 through 13 as he points us to the promise. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In the Bible, this phrase, be put to shame, refers to the crisis of judgment. It's that moment when the tombs are opened and the skies rolled back and the dead stand and people realize to their horror that the Jesus they had mocked, the God they had spurned, this Jesus now stands before them to judge them. And everything that they had trusted in, their reputation, their good intentions, their morality, everything they had trusted in, their religion, their theology, anything they had trusted in to make themselves right before the day of their death, they'll realize was abject failure and lie. They've been deceived. And that's what shame means. You've been exposed. You've been revealed to be found wanting. All of your, all of your expectations and beliefs have been found to be deception. And that judgment is absolutely what you deserve and judgment is where you're going to go. You deserve hell and you're going to go to hell. That's what the Bible means when it says being put to shame. And that's going to happen for every person, the Bible says, except those who believe in Jesus, those who found righteousness by faith. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. Every person, regardless of age, ethnicity, gender, social, or economic status, doesn't matter. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not experience shame, but will experience its exact opposite. They will experience glory. Glory. Robed in the righteousness and the beauty of Jesus himself, shown to be his precious bride, his church, invited into 
the bliss of eternity in his presence. That's what every person receives who believes in Jesus. For there is no distinction, Paul says, between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, Paul is saying that the, 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 the gospel, salvation, is not only easily accessible, it's equally accessible. It's available to anyone. It's available to everyone. Provided they call on the name of the Lord. All you need to do is call on the name of the Lord. Jesus gives his riches to all who call on his name. To call on the name of the Lord, friends, is, is, is just to appeal to him. To save you. That's what it is. Just, Lord, save me. Trust in all that he's done. Trust in who he is. It, it's to come to Jesus like the publican at the temple. Remember when the man who was beating his breast with a bowed head and humble heart, and he just said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It's to ask Jesus to come into your life. It's to ask Jesus to, to wash away your sin, to acknowledge you're never going to be good enough to save yourself, that you cast yourself completely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which God the Father offers to you as a free gift to be received by faith, and it's to come to God and say, Lord, give me, give me Jesus. Give me his righteousness. Save me. And the Bible says every single person who does that in truth will be saved. Do you struggle with assurance? I think we all do from time to time. Friends, this is where to go when you're struggling with assurance. Listen to what the Bible says. What do the scriptures say? Right? That's what Paul says over and over. What do the scriptures say? It says everyone without fault, without failure, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what it says. doesn't set up a, a whole regimen of how you have to go about calling. It just says call. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you all the things you need to do in order to come. It just says come. If you're thirsty, are you thirsty? That's what the Bible says. Let him who thirsts come and drink freely of the water of life. Come just as you are. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. A story is told of Queen Victoria, the great Queen of England in the 19th century. One, uh, one day as she left, I've been in the 20th century. She's Queen Elizabeth's mother, I believe. One day as she left St. Paul's Cathedral there in London, she said to one of her chaplains, uh, can one be absolutely certain of life, in this life, of eternal safety? Can you know now that you are forever secure? And sadly, the chaplain responded by saying that he didn't know any way in which one could be absolutely certain. Well, the court news published that conversation, and a man by the name of John Townsend, an unknown evangelist, saw the comments, and he began to pray for Queen Victoria, and he decided to write to her, and he wrote as follows. To her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, for one, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hand but heartfelt love, and because I know we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, 
May I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3.16 and Romans 10, 9-10. These passages, said Townsend, prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe and accept his finished work. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. Well, Townsend and his friends continued to pray for Queen Victoria, and some weeks later he received a letter through the mail which read to John Townsend, Your letter of recent date I received and in reply would state that I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me, and I trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Signed, Victoria. Friends, that is saving faith. That's saving faith. Is that your saving faith? Is that what you believe? Is that what you confess? Because it can be. The word is near you. The righteousness of Christ is fully available to you. It's accessible today. You just need to believe. You just need to call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And friend, if you've never done that, then don't wait. Don't waste another day. Do it, do it today. It's near you. This is the day of grace. This is the day of salvation. And you can press this with any of your unconverted friends. Friends, this is all it requires. It doesn't require a whole litany of theology to adhere to. It doesn't, it doesn't require a, a whole regimen of Christian practice to, to, to be devoted to. That, that comes afterwards. Salvation comes this way. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's God's promise. Amen. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord God, that you would give us this saving faith, each of us, and for those, Lord, who do not hold it today, I pray that you would just graciously provide we are lost without this, and we are eternally found with this. And so, Lord, if there be any here this morning who have never called on the name of the Lord and asked Jesus to be their righteousness, I pray that you would give that gift, give that grace, and we'll give you the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and pray that wonderful song together, just as I am. O Lamb of God, I come.
receive the benediction, God's parting word of peace to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace through Jesus Christ. Amen.